Part One, Chapter Eight of the Fur Country. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Fur Country by Jules Verne, Part One, Chapter Eight. The Great Bear Lake. This sudden increase of cold was most fortunate. Even in temperate climes, there are generally three or four bitter days in May, and they are most serviceable now in consolidating the freshly fallen snow and making it practicable for sledges. Lieutenant Hobson, therefore, lost no time in resuming his journey, urging on the dogs to their utmost speed. The route was, however, slightly changed. Instead of bearing due north, the expedition advanced towards the west. Following, so to speak, the curve of the Arctic Circle, the lieutenant was most anxious to reach Fort Confidence, built on the northern extremity of the Great Bear Lake. These few cold days were of the greatest service to him. He advanced rapidly; no obstacle was encountered, and his little troop arrived at the factory on the thirtieth of May. At this time, Forts Confidence and Good Hope were the most advanced posts. Of the company in the north, Fort Confidence was a most important position, built on the northern extremity of the lake, close to its waters, which, being frozen over in winter and navigable in summer, afforded easy access to Fort Franklin on the southern shores, and promoted the coming and going of the Indian hunters with their daily spoils. Many were the hunting and fishing expeditions which started from Forts Confidence and Good Hope, especially from the former. The Great Bear Lake is quite a Mediterranean sea, extending over several degrees of latitude and longitude. Its shape is very irregular; two promontories jut into it towards the centre, and the upper portions form a triangle. Its appearance, as a whole, much resembling the extended skin of a ruminant without the head. Fort Confidence was built at the end of the right paw. At least two hundred miles from Coronation Gulf, one of the numerous estuaries which irregularly indent the coast of North America, it was therefore situated beyond the Arctic Circle, but three degrees south of the seventieth parallel, north of which the Hudson's Bay Company proposed forming a new settlement. Fort Confidence, as a whole, much resembled other factories further south. It consisted of a house for the officers. Barracks for the soldiers, and magazines for the furs, all of wood surrounded by palisades. The captain in command was then absent; he had gone towards the east on a hunting expedition, with a few Indians and soldiers. The last season had not been good; costly furs had been scarce, but to make up for this, the lake had supplied plenty of otter skins. The stock of them had, however, just been sent to the central factories in the south, so that the magazines of Fort Confidence were empty on the arrival of our party. In the absence of the captain, a sergeant did the honors of the fort to Jasper Hobson and his companions. This second officer, Felton by name, was a brother-in-law of Sergeant Long. He showed the greatest readiness to assist the views of the lieutenant. Who, being anxious to rest his party, decided on remaining two or three days at Fort Confidence. In the absence of the little garrison, there was plenty of room, and dogs and men were soon comfortably installed. 
The best room in the largest house was, of course, given to Mrs. Paulina Barnett, who was delighted with the politeness of Sergeant Felton. Jasper Hobson's first care was to ask Felton if any Indians from the north were then beating the shores of the Bear Lake. "'Yes, Lieutenant,' replied the sergeant. "'We have just received notice of the encampment of a party of Hare Indians on the northern extremity of the lake.' "'How far from here?' inquired Hobson's. "'About thirty miles,' replied Sergeant Felton. "'Do you wish to enter into communication with these Indians?' "'Yes.' said Hobson. They may be able to give me some valuable information about the districts bordering on the Arctic Ocean, and bounded by Cape Bathurst. Should the site be favourable, I propose constructing our new fort somewhere about there. Well, Lieutenant, nothing is easier than to go to the Hare Encampment. Along the shores of the lake? No, across it. It is now free from ice, and the wind is favourable. We will place a cutter and a boatman at your service." and in a few hours you will be in the Indian settlement. Thank you, Sergeant. Tomorrow, then. Whenever you like, Lieutenant. The start was fixed for the next morning, and when Mrs. Paulina Barnett heard of the plan, she begged the Lieutenant to allow her to accompany him, which, of course, he readily did. But now to tell how the rest of this first day was passed. Mrs. Barnett, Hobson, two or three soldiers— Madge, Mrs. McNabb, and Joliffe explored the shores of the lake under the guidance of Felton. The neighbourhood was by no means barren of vegetation. The hills, now free from snow, were crowned by resinous trees of the Scotch pine species. These trees, which attain a height of some forty feet, supplied the inhabitants of the forts with plenty of fuel through the long winter. Their thick trunks and dark gloomy branches form a striking feature on the landscape, but the regular clumps of equal height, sloping down to the very edge of the water, are somewhat monotonous. Between the groups of trees the soil was clothed with a sort of whitish weed, which perfumed the air with a sweet, thymy odour. Sergeant Felton informed his guest that this plant was called the herb of incense, on account of the fragrance it emits when burnt. Some hundred steps from the fort, the party came to a little natural harbour, shut in by high granite rocks, which formed an admirable protection from the heavy surf. Here was anchored, here was anchored, the fleet of Fort Confidence, consisting of a single fishing-boat, the very one which was to take Mrs. Barnett and Hobson to the Indian encampment the next day. From this harbour an extensive view was obtained of the lake, its waters, slightly agitated by the wind, with its irregular shores, broken by jagged capes and intersected by creeks, the wooded heights beyond, with here and there the rugged outlines of a floating iceberg, standing out against the clear blue air, formed the background on the north, whilst on the south a regular sea-horizon, a circular line clearly cutting sky and water, and at this moment glittering in the sunbeams, bounded the sight. The whole scene was rich in animal and vegetable life. The surface of the water, the shores strewn with flints and blocks of granite, the slopes with their tapestry of herbs, the tree-crowned hilltops, were all alike frequented by various specimens of the feathered tribe. Several varieties of ducks, uttering their different cries and calls, eider ducks, whistlers, spotted redshanks, old women, those loquacious birds, whose beak is never closed, skimmed the surface of the lake. 
hundreds of puffins and guillemots with outspread wings that darted about in every direction and beneath the trees strutted ospreys two feet high a kind of hawk with a grey body blue beak and claws and orange-coloured eyes which build their huge nests of marine plants in the forked branches of trees the hunter sabine managed to bring down a couple of these gigantic ospreys which measured nearly six feet from tip to tip of their wings and were therefore magnificent specimens of these migratory birds who feed entirely on fish and take refuge on the shores of the gulf of mexico when winter sets in only visiting the higher latitudes of north america during the short summer but the most interesting event of the day was the capture of an otter the skin of which was worth several hundred roubles the furs of these valuable amphibious creatures were once much sought after in china and although the demand for them has considerably decreased in the celestial empire they still command very high prices in the russian market russian traders ready to buy up sea otter skins travel all along the coasts of new cornwall as far as the arctic ocean and of course thus hunted the animal is becoming very rare it has taken refuge further and further north and the trackers have now to pursue it on the shores of the kamchatka sea and in the islands of the bering archipelago but added sergeant felton after the preceding explanation american inland otters are not to be despised and those which frequent the great bear lake are worth from fifty to sixty pounds each the sergeant was right magnificent otters are found in these waters and he himself skilfully tracked and killed one in the presence of his visitors which was scarcely inferior in value to those from kamchatka itself the creature measured three feet from the muzzle to the end of its tail it had webbed feet short legs and its fur darker on the upper than on the under part of its body was long and silky a good shot sergeant said lieutenant hobson who with mrs barnett had been attentively examining the magnificent fur of the dead animal yes lieutenant replied felton and if each day brought us such a skin as that we should have nothing to complain of but much time is wasted in watching these animals who swim and dive with marvellous rapidity we generally hunt them at night as they very seldom venture from their homes in the trunks of trees or the holes of rocks in the daytime and even expert hunters find it very difficult to discover their retreats and are these otters also becoming scarcer and scarcer inquired mrs barnett yes madam replied the sergeant and when this species becomes extinct the profits of the company will sensibly decline all the hunters try to obtain its fur and the americans in particular are formidable rivals to us did you not meet any american agents on your journey up lieutenant not one replied hobson do they ever penetrate as far as this oh yes said the sergeant and when you hear of their approach i advise you be on your guard are these agents then highway robbers asked mrs paulina barnett no madam replied the sergeant but they are formidable rivals and when game is scarce hunters often come to blows about it i dare say that if the company's attempts to establish a fort on the verge of the arctic ocean be successful its example will at once be followed by these americans whom heaven confound bah exclaimed the lieutenant the hunting districts are vast and there's room beneath the sun for everybody as for us let's make a start to begin with let us press on as long as we have firm ground beneath our feet and god be with us 
After a walk of three hours, the visitors returned to Fort Confidence, where a good meal of fish and fresh venison awaited them. Sergeant Long did the honours of the table, and after a little pleasant conversation, all retired to rest to forget their fatigues in a healthy and refreshing sleep. The next day, May 31st, Mrs. Barnett and Jasper Hobson were on foot at 5 a.m., the lieutenant intended to devote this day to visiting the Indian encampment, and obtaining as much useful information as possible. He asked Thomas Black to go with him, but the astronomer preferred to remain on terra firma. He wished to make a few astronomical observations, and to determine exactly the latitude and longitude of Fort Confidence, so that Mrs. Barnett and Jasper Hobson had to cross the lake alone, under the guidance of an old boatman named Norman who had long been in the company's service. The two travellers were accompanied by Sergeant Long as far as the little harbour, where they found old Norman ready to embark. Their little vessel was but an open fishing-boat, six feet long, rigged like a cutter, which one man could easily manage. The weather was beautiful, and the slight breeze blowing from the northeast was favourable to the crossing. Sergeant Felton took leave of his guests, with many apologies for being unable to accompany them in the absence of his chief. The boat was let loose from its moorings, and tacking to starboard, shot across the clear waters of the lake. The little trip passed pleasantly enough. The taciturn old sailor sat silently in the stern of the boat, with the tiller tucked under his arm. Mrs. Barnett and Lieutenant Hobson, seated opposite to each other, examined with interest the scenery spread out before them. The boat skirted the northern shores of the lake at about three miles' distance, following a rectilinear direction, so that the wooded heights, sloping gradually to the west, were distinctly visible. From this side the district north of the lake appeared perfectly flat, and the horizon receded to a considerable distance. The whole of this coast contrasted sharply with the sharp angle at the extremity of which rose Fort Confidence, framed in green pines. The flag of the company was still visible, floating from the tower of the fort. The oblique rays of the sun lit up the surface of the water, and striking on the floating icebergs seemed to convert them into molten silver of dazzling brightness. No trace remained of the solid ice-mountains of the winter, but these moving relics, which the solar rays could scarcely dissolve, and which seemed, as it were, to protest against the brilliant but not very powerful polar sun, now describing a diurnal arc of considerable length. Mrs. Barnett and the lieutenant, as was their custom, communicated to each other the thoughts suggested by the strange scenes through which they were passing. They laid up a store of pleasant recollections for the future, whilst the beat floated rapidly along upon the peaceful waves. The party started at six in the morning, and at nine they neared the point on the northern bank at which they were to land. The Indian encampment was situated at the northwest angle of the Great Bear Lake. Before ten o'clock, old Norman ran the boat aground on a low bank at the foot of a cliff of moderate height. Mrs. Barnett and the lieutenant landed at once. Two or three Indians, with their chief, wearing gorgeous plumes, hastened to meet them and addressed them in fairly intelligible English. These hare Indians, like the copper and beaver Indians, all belong to the Chippeway race, 
and differ but little in customs and costumes from their fellow-tribes. They are in constant communication with the factories, and have become, so to speak, Britannized, at least as much so as is possible for savages. They bring the spoils of the chase to the forts, and there exchange them for the necessaries of life, which they no longer provide for themselves. They are in the pay of the company, they live upon it, and it is not surprising that they have lost all originality. To find a native race as yet uninfluenced by contact with Europeans, we must go to still higher latitudes, to the ice-bound regions frequented by the Eskimo, who, like the Greenlanders, are the true children of the Arctic lands. Mrs. Barnett and Jasper Hobson accompanied the Indians to their camp, about half a mile from the shore, and found some thirty natives there, men, women, and children, who supported themselves by hunting and fishing on the borders of the lake. These Indians had just come from the northernmost districts of the American continent, and were able to give the lieutenant some valuable, although necessarily incomplete, information on the actual state of the sea-coast near the seventieth parallel. The lieutenant heard with considerable satisfaction that a party of Americans or Europeans had been seen on the confines of the polar sea, and that it was open at this time of the year. About Cape Bathurst, properly so called, the point for which he intended to make, the Hare Indians could tell him nothing. Their chief said, however, that the district between the Great Bear Lake and Cape Bathurst was very difficult to cross, being hilly and intersected by streams, at this season of the year free from ice. He advised the lieutenant to go down the Coppermine River from the northeast of the lake, which would take him to the coast by the shortest route. Once at the Arctic Ocean, it would be easy to skirt along its shores and to choose the best spot at which to halt. Lieutenant Hobson thanked the Indian chief and took leave after giving him a few presents. Then, accompanied by Mrs. Barnett, he explored the neighborhood of the camp, not returning to the boat until nearly three o'clock in the afternoon. End of chapter 8